If you're with me this morning and you're hanging out with me, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, so you can turn ahead and meet me there. Revelation chapter 6, and Meadowbrook, we love you, we miss you, we don't love doing church this way, it is not our favorite, and yet, uh, even in stay-at-home, our church is really busy, church is hopping, and as we have uh, gone over the last couple of weeks, prayer meetings are still happening, life groups are still happening, counseling sessions are still happening, one-on-one meetings are still happening, kids' gatherings are still happening, youth is still happening, Bible studies are still happening, all legal, all safe, all within the confines of what we are able to do, uh, but there's just lots of stuff going on, and one of the very, very selfish reasons I don't like stay at home is because, honestly, it's just a lot of work. It's a lot harder to do ministry this way with a lot more moving pieces, and yet I'm so proud of our staff and our volunteers, our kids leaders, our youth leaders, uh, our worship team, just so many just making things work and figuring things out and being creative, and ministry still just plows ahead no matter what season we're in. Uh, God is is doing good stuff. And so thanks for your patience. I know we are all enduring this, and yet um, we are looking with excitement at what God is doing, even in the midst of all of this. So we are continuing on through our series that we're calling Apocalypse Now. We are walking through the book of Revelation. And so as we've come up to this point, uh, there hasn't been too much too crazy in Revelation yet. Uh, We have met Jesus, we have met John, we have met seven churches, and we've been in the throne room, we've been face-to-face with the Father on the throne, we've been face-to-face with the Lamb who sits on the throne. There's nothing that's been too controversial, too crazy, and now pretty much from here on out, Revelation gets weird. Revelation just gets weirder and weirder. It gets much more um, divisive in terms of what does this mean, what does that mean? It becomes much more interpretive from here on out, and I mean, in some ways, I feel like now we're like, like getting into the fun stuff. Now we're getting into the stuff where it's a lot of speculation, it's a lot of opinion, and it's a lot of interpretation. But now we get into to more and more of the mystery of this book, and that part is kind of fun, as long as we're willing to hold it a little lightly. Years ago in seminary, I took a course on Revelation, and the guy who taught it just taught Revelation. He'd written books on Revelation. He'd been teaching it for decades, uh, and he was an older gentleman. And he said to us at the beginning of the course, you might actually have more questions about Revelation at the end of this than you have right now, and that's okay. That Revelation is the type of book where you're meant to actually just enter into the wrestling with it. You are are, are wanting to to get into the mystery of it. That mystery is okay when it comes to God, even as we are seeking him for truth and understanding. And so if you're like me, that can be challenging because I like things nice and orderly. I like things nice and neat. I live a life that is very orderly and structured. I've told you guys before, during COVID, people who are wired like me have a harder time because we like things scheduled and structured and everything can get turned upside down in the year that we've had. And so if we're approaching scripture that way, where we like everything orderly and we're approaching theology that way, revelation becomes a challenge. And so when I like things neat and I like things clear and I like things defined and I like answers, it can be really challenging when you like things nice and orderly. I went this week and got my first shot of my vaccination and I I had to go to Amherstburg because Leamington was full. But I was just in my head just kind of wondering like, how are they pulling this off? Like, how are they getting this done? How are they getting so many people through this? And so I was at the the big stadium in Amherstburg, and if you like order and structure, it's like 
a glass of cold water. It's like scratching an itch. It's the most impressive thing. A few of you had told me this already. But to go in and everything is just so well organized and structured. It was so impressive. And everybody there, and a lot of the people were volunteers, but there were so many people there helping, and they were all just professional and amazing. And everyone was in a great mood. And, you know, they're just doing the same thing all day, every day. And everyone was so warm. And I was, this was Thursday. If you remember, Thursday was rainy and dreary that day. And as I'm driving in, they have people there who are like guiding you through the parking lot and which row you're supposed to go down and where you're going to park. And there was one lady there in the rain. She had a raincoat on and like a fluorescent vest and she had headphones on and she was just dancing and she was just directing everybody where to go and she was just having a great time. And everybody I met in there was just so wonderful. And every person I met, I just said, this is very impressive what you guys have pulled off, just the order of it and the efficiency of it. And they'd said, come expecting it to take an hour. But like in 20 minutes, you're, I was in and out and, and the whole thing. I just went, wow, you're just getting thousands of people through this all every day. It's so impressive if you like order. And so when we are approaching scripture that way, it doesn't always work out. Because when we're approaching scripture, there's a God who is by nature mysterious. And he has made himself known to us. But that doesn't mean that we figure him out, that we master him, that we master his word. And, and how ridiculous for those of us who think we are mortal to think that we could ever master God or figure him out entirely, who is so holy and so far beyond us and so separate and above who we are. My wife and kids, I know better than anyone on earth, they still surprise me. I don't have them totally figured out yet. And so we need to be humble in our approach to scripture and to the Lord that we might not be, it might not be a situation where we're supposed to master his word. Martin Luther said, it's that his word is supposed to master us that it's supposed to bring us into relationship with him. It's supposed to make us aware of our need for him. It's supposed to bring us in submission to him. I've shared this story before when it comes to Revelation, that many years ago I was on a trip to Africa, and I was talking with some pastors. We were talking about this chapter that we're going to read today, Revelation chapter 6, which has the four horsemen, the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse in it. And these pastors in Africa were saying, uh, yeah, like we're in Revelation 6 right now. We are living this out right now. We are seeing this happening in real time all around us. And I was surprised because especially uh, coming from the Pentecostal church, there was a widely held view that Revelation was primarily going to come down the road. It was futuristic. It was end time stuff. And so nobody in Canada was preaching, we're in the middle of Revelation chapter 6 right now. We were saying, one day, these are things that are going to come. And so I'm looking at these pastors like they're crazy. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. And then as they're describing their lives as people who live in Africa, and they're saying there is war everywhere, there is famine everywhere, there is plague everywhere, there is death everywhere, I'm going, oh, right. Uh, so in their lens, by which they are coming to the scripture, that makes perfect sense. In safe, comfortable Canada, where none of this stuff is going on, it doesn't look like that's going on in the world right now, but that's the world they live, live in every day. And it was so eye-opening to me, I was 25 or 26 when that happened, of just going, okay, so wow, we all bring a worldview to the text. We all bring something of ourselves to the scripture, and so we need to be aware of that, that just because I'm looking at it through my, my comfortable, uh, you know, well 
off middle-class Canadian lens uh, does not necessarily mean that that's the, the, the right way or the only way. And there's actually value in saying, how are others coming to the scripture? What conclusions are they coming to? And so it was a good challenge just to lean into the mystery of this book. I might be right. The African pastors might be right. None of us might be right. But Revelation, I think, is less about us figuring it out and solving it like a riddle. And it's more about, let's enter into the mystery. This book we said at the beginning is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's entering into who he is and what the Spirit is saying to us through his word. So let's take a look at our text then. Revelation chapter 6, we will read through that together, and then we'll pull some stuff out of it as we go. Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. So Revelation 5, if you remember, there is, we saw the Lamb upon the throne. We did this last Sunday. By the way, if you miss any messages, they're all on YouTube, obviously. Uh, so last week in Revelation 5, we saw the Lamb upon the throne. There was a scroll with seven seals on it, uh, and only the Lamb was worthy to open the scroll. There is something about this scroll that has to do with God's redemptive plan. And so the Lamb was the only one in heaven and earth who was found who was worthy to open the scroll. So Revelation 6, verse 1. I watched watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? So that's like nice, like bedtime reading, right? Just to relax and calm down before you slip away into a nice peaceful sleep. We're getting into heavier stuff. This is a little more challenging than just worshiping the lamb on the throne like we did last week. And so what we see as these seals start to get broken, as the scroll is starting to unroll, there is something in this scroll. We saw last week that John wept and wept because no one was found who was able to open up the scroll. There was something in this that has to 
to do with God's plan. God's plan is wrapped up in this scroll. And so as the seals start to get broken, it does not seem to be, oh, wow, great blessing being poured out, but rather great judgment that is coming on the earth. And not every seal is specifically a judgment. But we have a lot of imagery in this picture. There's the so-called four horsemen. There's blood moons and, and stars falling out of the sky and, and mountains being removed and all of these things. And we have talked about this a bit throughout. But just as a reminder, there are four main ways that people have approached the book of Revelation in 2,000 years of church history. Four different uh, interpretive lenses by which they approach the book. The first is called the preterist view, and that is the view that this book was primarily written in the first century for the first century. So the things that are talked about in Revelation were for that time, and and in context uh, probably have to do with judgments that fell on the Roman Empire in the world at that time. Not everything in Revelation was fulfilled. Jesus has not returned yet, but that this was a book written in the first century for the church of the first century. The events it talks about were for them and what they were living through at that time. That's the preterist view. There is the historicist view, and the historicist view has said that Revelation has been unfolding all this time. It started with Rome and with the seven churches, but all of these judgments and all of these things have been happening for the last 2,000 years. There is an unfolding of God's plan that we have been walking through for 2,000 years. There is another view called the idealist view, or the the spiritualist view, and that this view says that the book of Revelation is not really meant to do any of that. It's just a big metaphor. It is a big spiritual metaphor, and so passages like this are just Scripture's way of saying God judges sin, and so we don't need to look at it for specific events or try to, like, crack a code. It's just this is how God deals with sin. It's been happening since the beginning, like the flood uh, with Noah's Ark, and it's going to happen all the way to the end. God deals with sin, sometimes with judgment, and then there is the futurist view, and this is probably what most of us grew up with, and that believes that Revelation is primarily about things to come in the future. It is primarily an end times book, and so things like this, this was the view I was coming from when I was talking to those African pastors, which was that these are going to come down the road, that there is an end times thing that is coming. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that before he returns, it's going to get bad. There's going to be stuff that goes on on the earth, and so the futurist view says Revelation is more of an end times thing, and so we don't need to look at what it means right now because it's something that is to come. All of these views have value. We have touched on all of them as we go through and we will continue to. They all have weaknesses as well. And so I'm again, I'm not necessarily concerned with like what's the right view as much as let's enter into the wrestling match with this text and look at it from some different perspectives. And so is it possible that we're living out Revelation 6 right now? Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible? No, it's primarily about end time stuff. Yeah, that is also very possible. And considering that there's no way to know for sure, then our question becomes, all right, what is the Spirit saying to us right now? Regardless of the, the whatever the right view is, what is the Spirit saying to us right now? So these seals are broken. Judgments start to come. There are three rounds of judgments that are going to come on the earth in the book of Revelation. There are the seals that are getting broken, and then there are trumpets that are going to be blasted, and then there's bowls that are going to be poured out on the earth. And the, the judgments escalate as time goes on. So this is kind of round one. And it's not pleasant stuff, but Jesus, as he was talking about end time stuff specifically, uses this picture that although terrible stuff is coming on the earth, he says they're like birth pangs. They're like labor pains. 
It's like when a woman's in labor, and that is a painful process, but the painful process is temporary, and it's actually bringing new life. And Scripture says that once the baby is born, the woman is able to forget the pains of labor. I don't know if women literally forget, uh, but the point is, is that the joy of the baby so surpasses any temporary pain that, that the feeling is, of course, it's worth it. Of course, I don't regret the pain of labor. Look what I have now. And Jesus said, as these things go on, Paul would talk about it in Romans as well, that all creation is groaning. This picture of like a woman in labor, there is a groaning going on. There is an understanding that the world is not right. There is an understanding that evil needs to be dealt with and that even if things are getting worse and even if this pain is there, it's a temporary pain that's ultimately going to lead to new life. It's ultimately going to lead to the fullness of joy. Just like labor is a necessary pain to bring new life forward, these are necessary things that need to happen in order to bring the fullness of God's plan to fruition. So the seals start getting broken, starting in verse 1. 1 and 2. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in the voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So first thing to note, however we are interpreting the timeline of this stuff or where they fit into the big picture of things, it's the Lamb who's opening the seals. It's Jesus who's in control. That is the first thing to note. Jesus is in control of all of it. He is opening the seals. He is releasing these things. He's doing it in his timing. He is doing it in perfection. There is nothing that is happening that he is not fully in control of. The lamb on the throne is in charge, and he does not make mistakes. So the lamb is the one releasing all of these things. And so the first thing that comes out is this white horse with the rider, with the crown, with the bow, riding out as a conqueror on conquest. And so this is the part uh, as we shift in Revelation where a lot of interpretation comes into it. What do these things mean? What are they? Uh, and, and as with all things uh, in Revelation, there's a wide variety of opinions, but um, you know, are these demonic powers being released? Are these angelic powers being released? Are these literal horses that we're actually going to physically see ride through the sky, as some believe? And I, I don't know necessarily where biblically you can draw the line between whether it's an angelic force or a demonic force necessarily but I think certainly fair to conclude that this is something that God is letting be unleashed on the world. It is a force or a power of some kind that God is releasing that's going to have an effect on the world. And so some have speculated, is this like Jesus? Because later in Revelation, Jesus comes back on a white horse and he has crowns on his head. And uh, given the context, I think that seems very unlikely. Usually the white horse gets represented as warfare. That's usually how it gets interpreted, that uh, just a, a level of warfare is going to be released on the world. Uh, conquest, right? Like Hitler wanted to take over the world. Genghis Khan wanted to take over the world. Or something aggressive. If this is not necessarily just two countries who aren't getting along and are bumping up against each other, this is this is something more than that. This is conquest. This is someone trying to take over the world, or perhaps multiple nations trying to take over the world. There is there is this level of war being released there. Verse three and four. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, "Come." Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. 
Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And so in the artwork we just looked at, the white horse comes first, the red horse comes second, and they seem somewhat connected to one another. The first one comes, I think, probably as warfare. The second one comes not as warfare exactly, but with the power to take peace from the world. And so it's been speculated maybe that represents more like civil war or riots in the street or, or you know, problems going on in communities, uh, perhaps even like in marriages or in churches or in relationships, that this comes to take peace away. And, and when you take peace away, most of us live our lives, and even most countries, uh, live their lives in a state of peace. And we, and we want to be at peace wherever possible. Apparently, this force will have the power to take that peace away. And when that peace is taken away, it's going to lead to all sorts of problems. And now, it's also very possible that the horse, it's not that they're really necessarily separate things, but that as war takes over the world, this lack of peace follows along right with it. So not necessarily like in a sequence these things are going to happen. But as war takes over more and more, this lack of peace is going to follow right along with it. And then from there, there is uh, the next horse that comes, which is possibly connected to this as well. Verse 5 and 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. So no weapon this time. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. And so this one uh, almost always gets interpreted as famine, that it's coming to bring drought and famine. In a time of famine, uh, there is uh, just a, a price leap that happens. And so the numbers they're talking about of a day's wage for two pounds, like we're talking in our context, we don't buy our wheat on our own. We get it made for us into flour. But we're talking like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a five or ten pound bag of flour. Like we're talking a lot of money uh, for some flour to make some bread at home. Um, also could just be uh, not drought or famine, but again, maybe just the effects of war and, and unrest when prices tend to go crazy, when armies tend to go and they tend to consume off the land and there's just not enough food for everybody. In every major conflict, there is a food uh, spillover consequence where there's just not enough food for everybody. So prices go nuts. Prices go, you're talking about like a week's wages for some flour, but notice again that heaven is setting the limits on this thing. This is not a power that's allowed to do whatever it wants. Heaven decides. This is what you are allowed to charge. I love the line in there, but don't touch the oil and the wine, right? You can do this, but you can't do that. Heaven will let you go this far, but you can go no further. And I like just the picture of this text that like, so it might cost you a week's wages to make some bread, but you can have a glass of wine at the end of the day just to take the edge off all the stress of everything you're going to be carrying in this time. And so again, it could be just there's going to be a sequence of things, but, um, and this is just my interpretation. I'm not claiming that it's right. I think it's more likely that just these troubles are going to come on the world. These horsemen are all tied together. When there's war, there is a lack of peace. When there's war and a lack of peace, there, there is something that happens to the food in that time. And it also connects with this last horse, verse 7 and 8. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. And so death often uh, personified in scripture as a skeleton, or you've seen the black robe and the, the farming sickle. And 
Um, and so this pale horse with death riding on it. And Hades following behind. Hades uh, typically gets translated in the Old Testament as the grave. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. Uh, typically means the grave. That there is just, there is death and there are people who fall into death following behind death. And again, could be its own thing. Or these four horsemen could just represent that, hey, a time will come on the world where there is more war. And as there is more war, there is less peace. As there is more war, there is less food. As there is more war there will be death and then it's added in here but also plague apparently and and difficulties uh and these are the types of things that jesus says in matthew 24 will precede the coming of the son of man that there are things on earth that are going to get worse along the way not all of these seals have to do with judgments that are coming on the earth the fifth seal is very different verse 9 to 11 when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of god and the testimony they'd maintained they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So apparently in heaven there is this altar uh, around the throne somehow, and so John is able to see this. And connected to this altar are all these souls, everyone who has died for the testimony of Jesus. And apparently there is a number in heaven that God is looking for. The martyrs, the number of people who die for their faith needs to reach this point before the end can actually come. There is something God has, has set a time. He has set a limit. He has set a number there. Uh, one scholar I was reading years ago had said, uh, by his estimation, and there's no way to know this, I, I don't quite know where the data came from on it, but by his estimation, probably around 100 million people have laid down their lives for the name of Jesus. They have not recanted their testimony that Jesus is Lord, and they have been killed for it. And he estimated that about two-thirds of that has happened in the last 100 years alone that there has been an escalation happening of those who are laying down their lives for the name of Jesus. And it's interesting that they, they seem to have this place of honor in heaven. They seem to have this special place. There is this special area of heaven that is just for them. And for anyone in the first century who was going through the persecution we've been talking about, these seven churches were all facing persecution, it would have been, I have no doubt, incredibly encouraging to go, okay, well, even if we do die for our faith, there is a place in heaven for us. And even if we die for our faith, God will deal with it. There, there is a way that God will make this right. And so there's an encouragement there for a suffering people. And, and the persecution that, you know, we don't face, I know that word has come up a lot in this last year. Um, if things change, I'm willing to change my opinion but I'm still holding to the opinion that we can't call this persecution. We just can't. And part of the reason I'm, I'm so sticky on that is that there is persecution going on around the world. And there are people who are dying around the world. And there are people in jail and being tortured and being, you know, afflicted in lots of different ways, not because they want to gather during a health crisis, but because they refuse to back off their statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. So persecution is a holy word. That's not something we just throw around. And that's not something that we just claim for ourselves when we don't like something the government is doing. That there, there is a, a sacredness about this. That there are those who are actually dying for their faith. And when a restaurant gets the same treatment as a church who stays open right now, you cannot call that Christian persecution. You just can't. And that word is far too holy for us just to grab onto just because we might not like what's going on right now. The other thing to note about persecution 
mission, when it's real and when it comes, it has never once worked in 2,000 years. It has never stopped the church at all. It has never stopped the gospel even a little bit. There has never been a force like Soviet Russia that tried harder to crush the gospel. And like they, they killed priests, they put people in jail, they burned down churches, they did everything they could to drive out the name of Jesus. They said, we are an atheist country. We do not want this in here. We believe that this is deception and it deludes the masses. And so they did everything possible and they were a powerful nation. They were a wealthy nation. They had a strong army. They had a strong secret police. They did everything they could. And, you know, Russia is not Russia like that anymore. And the gospel continues on. It has never worked once. No one has ever been able to stop this. And we also see in this picture that for those who are killed and lay down their lives, they get to heaven. There's a place for them. There's the white robe given to them. Like there, there is triumph in this. There is actually victory for them in laying their life down. And Jesus would say, don't love your life here on this earth too much because you might have to lay it down for the sake of the kingdom. And if you do, there is place in heaven for you. There is reward there. Even if we do lay it down, we are triumphant nonetheless. And these martyrs, as they are there, say, Lord, how long? When is, when is your vengeance going to come? When are you going to make this right? We were killed for obeying you. We were killed for holding to our testimony. When will that be made right? And it is not, uh, it does not seem to be so much, hey, we, we deserve, uh, you know, vengeance on our own as much as when will this be fixed? When will creation be set right? When will this be put in order? And it's just a reminder to us. Uh, it shows up all over in the New Testament. Romans 12, 19 is one example. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not that things don't get dealt with. It's that Christ followers don't take revenge. We leave that in God's hands. All of those who laid down their lives did not lay down their lives fighting back or taking a stand. They laid down their lives. And they said, God will make it right. And so it's not that evil will not be punished. It's not that things will not get dealt with. It's just the understanding that we're really bad at revenge as humans. And God's judgment is perfect. And his power is better. And he's better at doing this than we are. And so we don't take on revenge as Christ followers. The people of God who follow after Jesus are not vengeful people. We say we will leave room for God to deal with this. He will take care of it. Our job is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Moving on to the last seal that we'll look at today, verse 12 to 14. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So this is judgment language, uh, dark suns, blood moons. We see this in the Old Testament a fair bit. It raises the question, as much of Revelation does, how literally do we take this stuff? Are these actual things that are going to happen? I mean, some of these things are direct quotes from Old Testament passages of judgment that didn't literally happen in the Old Testament. It's just some poetic language. It is metaphorical language that just says, essentially, everything's going to go crazy for a while. Everything's going to go nuts. And so... There, you can take it literally. I don't think you have to take it literally. I think uh, even just going, well, stars can't fall to the earth, right? Stars are all the size of suns. They, that's not possible. Um, and so for the, the picture of stars, this could just be poetry. And I sometimes think with Revelation, you know, this is a vision that John has had. 
Uh, and I wonder if the scripture said this was a dream that John had, whether we might not struggle so much with the literal side of things, because we don't typically take dreams in the Bible literally unless it's talking about an actual historical event. So in Joel chapter 2, we see similar type language. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, God says, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that kind of language you'll see in Ezekiel, you'll see it in Isaiah. Uh, sometimes it's talking about futuristic stuff. Sometimes it's talking about stuff that's going to happen in the time of the prophet. Um, but it's not literal ever. It's not, there's not always this literal, this is exactly how it's going to go. There's going to be no sun anymore. Because what we're going to see in a second as well um, is that the text just said all the mountains are going to disappear. But then it's going to say all the people of earth go hide in the mountains. Well, how can they hide in the mountains if the mountains all just disappear? It's because I don't think you need to take that literally. I think it's that there's a great shaking coming, that everything is going to be a little scary, that everything is going to turn upside down because judgment is coming. Last couple of verses, 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Uh, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So, I mean, interesting, the kings, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and then everybody else, right? All of us poors also will be involved in this, uh, the people of the earth, slave and free, um, hiding in mountains that, again, have been removed already. So I don't think we need to die on the hill of literalism in how we interpret this. But we can't talk about revelation without talking about wrath. So here's my definition of wrath. It's, it's too simplistic for sure, but if you wanted a short, pithy statement of wrath, wrath is divine anger in action. That anger is an emotion, wrath is that anger being acted out. And there are times in scripture in both testaments where God gets angry and that anger provokes him to action. And that action is typically judgment. There is something that he does to deal with the evil that is making him angry. And so we don't sing worship songs about the wrath of God. Uh, we don't get warm and fuzzy Holy Spirit feelings typically from the wrath of God. We don't take often a lot of time praying about the wrath of God. We don't take a lot of time talking about the wrath of God, but that is an aspect of who he is. And again, you can't read Revelation without engaging with it. And what's so fascinating about these last couple of verses is that all the people of the earth are, are terrified as to what is happening. They are seeing all of these things that are happening. They are saying, hey, uh, save us from the Father on the throne. Save us from the Lamb. Hide us from the Lamb. And so they're acknowledging that it's God. They're acknowledging that it's Jesus who is doing these things. And yet nothing is changing. They're not crying out for mercy. They're not changing their lives. We're going to see this later in Revelation as well, that even though these things are shaking the earth, uh, people will refuse to turn away from the, the sin that they are walking in. And so wrath is not something that is, is easy to get excited about, and yet the fact that it exists, it shows us how serious our sin really is. And, and it shows us how God views sin and evil in the world. And where it's very easy for people to say, well, I'm not so bad. I'm not a serial killer. Uh, you know, I never robbed a bank. I never did anything that terrible. 
and it's very easy to kind of let ourselves off the hook. The wrath of God and the level of stuff coming on the earth shows us how seriously his sin, uh, how seriously our sin affects him, how seriously he takes it. And if he takes sin that seriously, then maybe that means we need to redefine our casual attitude about it. Now, the good news for those of us who follow with Jesus, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that to trust in Jesus, to put your hope in him, gets the wrath off of you. But if you reject the Son, the wrath of God remains on you, that God has provided a way out, that the wrath of God shows us how seriously God takes sin. The cross shows us how seriously God takes sin because Jesus came and he died to let us out from this wrath, to get this away from us. That's how bad Jesus wanted us saved from the wrath of God the consequences that were going to fall upon the evil of the world. And so it, it should shake us a little bit. There should be a bit of a tremble that comes when we start thinking about how seriously God takes this. There is no room for self-righteousness in the life of a Christian to look down on other people's sin. There is no room for that. The, the job of all of us is to look at ourselves, to pay attention to ourselves. And we are very, very good at letting ourselves off the hook for our sin while looking down on other people for theirs. Philip Yancey has a great quote where he says, Christians are, get very angry towards people who sin differently than they do. I love that quote so much. Christians get so angry at people who sin differently than they do. So our job is not to say, well, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, thank you, God, that I am not like other people who do this and do that. Thank you that I'm not like them. I do all the right things, and I come to church, and I tithe, and I pray. Thank you that I'm better. It's like, no, that in that parable, it's the tax collector who pleased God, who just said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner that I am that we take our sin seriously, that we don't let ourselves off the hook, that we actually pay attention to that. And so the wrath of God shows us the judgment of God, but it's really the justice of God. And when you watch most movies, there's a bad guy. Usually, not always, it can be kind of edgy to make the bad guy win, but usually in most stories, the bad guy gets it in the end. And you're not usually horrified when that happens because there's something deep down within us that says that is right, that's how it should be. Evil should be punished. Evil should not be rewarded. The bad guy should get it in the end. And so that is something, there is something of justice, that, that where things are wrong, they need to be made right. Where things are evil, that evil needs to be dealt with. Where there is sin, the sin has to be confronted. That if God is going to be just, he has to deal with this stuff. And he deals with this stuff through his judgment. And so what we are seeing now is God dealing with the evil he sees in the world through these judgments. That is part of what he is, being, what is pouring out. But again, what's alarming about those last couple of verses is that the people who are saying rocks fall on us, mountains fall on us, hide us, is like these people are acknowledging God. They are acknowledging Jesus. They are acknowledging that the Father and the Son are causing all of these things that are happening, and yet they are not falling on their face in the fear of the Lord. They are not calling out to him for mercy. They are, they are not turning away from these things, which again, we will see happen later in Revelation as well. Their hearts are hard. And so even though they are saying, Father and Jesus are doing these things, they are not coming to the Father. They are not coming to Jesus. They are not turning away. It sounds a little bit like Pharaoh's story in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, that Pharaoh is told by God through Moses, let my people go. 
and Pharaoh won't. And as plagues start falling, and you look at it and you go, man, how is it possible that Pharaoh could see the, the blood and see the bugs and see the frogs and see all of these things happening and not turn away? And scripture says over and over again, it's because his heart was hard. His heart was too hard. And in some of these passages, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And in some of them, it says that God hardened his heart. And what seems a little scary is that in the first few plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then as it gets to the end, God hardens his heart for the last ones. And it seems like there was a point where Pharaoh just kind of crossed a line. There was a point where there was no way his heart was going to be soft anymore. And that just needs to be something that we are all also aware of, that we would not be a hard-hearted people. And as we go through life and as we get hurt and as we get disappointed and sometimes prayers don't get answered or whatever, our hearts also can become hard. And we need to be so careful because Pharaoh was face-to-face -face with the majesty of God. The kings and rulers of the world in these verses are face-to-face with with the majesty of God, and still it was not enough. Still it was not enough for things to change for them. And may we never, ever be like that. We need to pay attention to what's going on in our hearts. And that's hard to do. Most of us are not very good at processing our feelings. We're not very good at talking about them. We're not very good at understanding what's going on inside of us. But there's a trick. Are you ready? Jesus gives us a trick. Jesus gives us a tool. He gives us a way that makes it so clear what's going on in our hearts. Jesus said, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Your words are broadcasting what's going on in your heart, even if you don't realize it. Your words are demonstrating, because whatever is going on in your heart, that's bubbling over to the things that are coming out of your mouth. And so bitter words come out of a bitter heart. Anxious words come out of an anxious heart. Peaceful words come out of a peaceful heart. Encouraging words come out of an encouraging heart. And so we need to pay attention to our words and it's like Jesus knows, hey, it can be hard to sort through all this stuff, right? There's a swirl of thoughts and feelings and emotions going on in all of us. It can be really hard to process all of it. It's one of the greatest tools that he gives us. Pay attention to your words. Your words are broadcasting what's going on in your heart. And it's one of the greatest gifts we can give to one another because if I'm saying something, I might not even realize that I'm saying or I'm not even realizing what it sounds like. And sometimes if I'm counseling someone and they're saying something, I will say to them, it sounds like you're anxious. These are anxious words. Let's talk about maybe where that anxiety is coming from. You're sounding bitter. These are bitter words coming out. So where's that bitterness inside? Where is that coming from? And we can do that for one another. It just, it's so easy just to say, hey, this is what I'm hearing in your words. And what might that be saying about what's going on in your heart? Because we don't want to be uh, in the hard-hearted, you know, Pharaoh, the hard hearts of these people, these rulers these, who, are, who are saying, hey, the Lamb of God is doing this, but are not turning to him, are not crying out to him for mercy. They're just trying to hide. And the irony being, you can't hide from the judgment of God. You can't. You can't hide from him. Jesus says, as we get closer to the end, he says, because of the increase of sin, the love of many will grow cold. And those are words meant to warn us. And so where's the love level at in our lives? Not just for my family, but for everyone around me. Where is my love for my neighbor? Where is my love for my enemy? May we not be found amongst the ones whose love grows cold. May we take the warnings of Scripture seriously. Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to move into communion today.
So this is heavy stuff, guys, for sure. This is not light and fluffy. And so as we talk about thriving, we're talking about being people who thrive in 2021, not just surviving, but actually thriving. And as we look at a verse like this, which is about judgment, which is about evil, which is about sin, what do we pull out of it in order to be thriving? And I think the, the obvious and, and most simple one, although not the easiest one, is that we will actually thrive when we take sin seriously. We will actually thrive when we don't make excuses for it. We will actually thrive when we realize how God views our sin. We will actually thrive there. Because if we are taking it as seriously as he does, and I don't know if we ever can quite reach where he's at because we are still mortal, but if we take sin seriously like to the level that we're reading about in this passage, then we will make more effort to turn from it. We will say, Lord, I need your help to turn from it. We will say, Lord, renew me and help me turn from it. We will seek accountability. We will seek help. We will seek next steps. We will thrive as we walk in more holiness and as we walk in less sin. We will thrive as we stay close to the Lord. Where the way these guys react at the end of the passage, it's exactly what Adam and Eve did at the beginning. Sin came and their reaction was hide. Right? Sometimes we sin, our reaction is hide. We don't want anyone to know. We don't want the Lord to know. We want to cover it up. We want to stay away. We want to run and hide. And yet the scripture says, for those of us who know the Lord, come boldly before the throne of grace. Come and receive the grace that he wants to give. Hiding is the opposite of what we should be doing in our sin. We should be inviting someone into it so we can have some accountability, have someone praying for us, and we should be bringing it to the Lord. We will thrive there as we walk in more holiness. So as we move into communion now, as we reflect on heavy stuff, wrath of God, judgment of God, the, the seriousness of sin, evil in the world, here's some hope for us who follow after Jesus. This is from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the wrath of God is not for us. The wrath of God is not something that needs to be for us. And if you're here and you uh, don't know the Lord yet, or this is all kind of new to you, the wrath of God does not need to be for you either. We're saved. We are saved 
from God's wrath because all that went, that was going to be poured out on the world for us has been poured out on Jesus at the cross instead. And we are saved from God's wrath through him. And so there is much debate in Revelation 6. Are we going to be on the world when these things happen? Uh, are we going to be raptured out before these things happen? The text that we just read doesn't say either way. I think Jesus seems to imply in Matthew 24 that we will be on the earth as this is happening. But, uh, but like Israel in the time of Pharaoh, Israel was shielded from it. They were protected by God. And as the, the plague of the firstborn came, they took the blood of a lamb and they put it on their doorpost and the blood marked them as God's people. It says, we belong to God. The, the wrath, the plague will not land on us because we are his. And so as we come to the table this morning, that is what we are celebrating. Even as we recognize that we are sinners, even as we recognize we need to turn from it and take it seriously, we come rejoicing that the wrath of God is not on us. We come rejoicing because we too are covered with the blood of the lamb. We are marked as those who belong to God. His grace and his forgiveness are ours. And if you're listening and you don't know about that, I'll encourage you to talk to whoever you're watching with or you can get in touch with the office because the wrath of God does not need to be for you either. And so we come thankful to the table this morning. As we get ready to partake, the Bible says that a person should examine themselves before they come and before they eat and before they drink. And so we always do that here. And so we're just going to pause for a moment while the worship team plays quietly. And just take a moment just to reflect on the words of the sermon, the seriousness with which God is viewing sin. If you have sin that you need to confess, now is the moment to do that. If there's anything that you need to get off your chest with the Lord, now is the great time. If you just want to be thankful for here for a few minutes, then let's do that as well. But let's pause here, and then we'll all partake together in a moment.